0: Again this morning. So kind of beginning with the end in mind, 2 Kings chapter 25. Continuing this series, last week we looked at 1 Kings and I said it's uh, really one book in the Hebrew scriptures, but we have it divided into two halves here, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So we'll be in 2 Kings, the second part here this morning. And before we do that, I just want to go before the Lord for a prayer of preparation. And uh, let this be a time to attune your hearts to God's word and to be ready to receive what he has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is perfect, your word is perfect. Is sure it never returns void, just as the rain comes down from the heavens and waters the earth and causes things to grow, so it is with your word. Lord, I pray for each person in this room today, in the hearing of your word, that your word would bear fruit, that it would renew our minds, that it would transform our hearts. And Lord, we recognize that this work is impossible apart from your Holy Spirit. And so we call upon you to fill us with your spirit to understand, to receive, and to be moved to respond in obedience to your word this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, does anyone feel like now maybe more than ever or more more in these times than you have in a long time, that we may be coming to the end of an era here in America? Like maybe things that we once took for granted are no longer the guarantees that we thought they were. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that phrase, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. If I could use one phrase to describe the story of 2 Kings, I think that would be the most fitting phrase. It was the end of the world as they knew it. First Kings started us out on this kind of quick downward spiral, out of control, beginning with Solomon, who was devoted to God and built the great temple, the great house for God, but began to love his wealth, began to, bego, began to become prideful of his wisdom. And then he befriended the nations around him and eventually built altars in the high places to foreign gods. It took just 50 years from going to dedicating this great temple of the Lord to Ahab killing the prophets of God. Complete rejection, complete abandonment of God. And we learned last week that there were only 7,000 left in Israel 7,000 left in Israel that did not bow the knee to the false God Baal. Now, if you think about this, a population of Israel at the time, maybe around a million, and there were only 7,000 genuine believers left. we think about the people of God, that's less than 1% who were faithful in the nation of Israel. And so, as God had promised, if they forsook his word, if they forsook his law, that he would bring judgment upon them. And that brings us to 2nd Kings chapter 25. And I want to read here starting in verse 1 and I want to go through verse 11 trying to get to the right place in my notes here. 2nd Kings chapter 25 verse 1 through 11. This is what becomes of Israel. This is what becomes of Judah at the end of 2nd Kings. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So we have invasion of the city, we have famine in the city. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Ereba. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. City is invaded, king is deported, his sons are killed. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, That was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord. That's the temple. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried in to exile. There's a good picture of it there. A city on fire, the temple lying in ruins. The king carried off into Babylon. His children slaughtered in the midst of a great famine. Just a few hundred years earlier, Israel was on top of the world. They had everything going for them, and now it was completely in shambles. They would soon be forgotten in that land, particularly Israel, the kingdom to the north. Now, 2 Kings, unlike 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, is really just this very fast-paced run-through of a bunch of kings as it goes on that downward spiral, and they're eventually carried off into captivity. 1 Samuel was kind of all about Saul and a little bit about David coming up. 2 Samuel was mostly about David. Half of 1 Kings was pretty much about Solomon. Second half of Kings is a lot about Ahab and Elijah. 2 Kings, however, covers 29 kings. It spans about 300 years. It also includes the ministry of Elijah's successor, Elisha, who was given a double portion of the Holy Spirit and performed many miracles, providing for a widow who had nothing, raising a son from the dead, healing a commander of leprosy. It also includes accounts about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah as in like the Isaiah, for whom we have a whole book named after. But if we were to like examine every single one of those Stories and every one of those kings, we would be here all day, and I can assure you this will be a much shorter sermon than the one last week. But instead of individual main characters in First Kings, I would say that the main characters of Second Kings are really whole nations. So, if you can picture this, the main characters of Second Kings would be the two kingdoms, the divided kingdoms of Israel, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The other main chari- character would be Assyria. If you want to go to that next slide, you Sammy, Assyria to the northeast. And then the other main character would be Babylon. Those were the two countries that invaded Israel and Judah and displaced them from the promised land. And 2 Kings, it, it continues to describe for us the internal division of Israel. It tells us how Assyria invaded and displaced The northern kingdom of Israel, and how Babylon eventually invaded Judah, and as we just looked at, carried them off into Babylon, burned the whole city of Jerusalem down. And the book ends with Judah, the remaining people of Israel, being carried away as their city lies in ruins, exactly as God said it would happen if they forsook his word. And I want you to see the parallel to the Garden of Eden is very vivid here. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve rejected God's word and what? They were exiled. They were sent out from the garden to the east. Similar thing here. The people of God forsake God's word. They reject him and they're sent out from the city of God to Babylon. It was the end of the world as they knew it. It was the end of that period beginning with Joshua when he settled the promised land followed by about 800 years there. It was the end of an idea and it was the end of the hope of an ideal promised land for Israel. Much like we talk about today with the end of the Roman Empire or the end of the British Empire or what will be the someday end of the American dream. And if you don't believe that, America is going to go away someday too. We think of these kingdoms in the moment of all their prosperity, in the moment of all their glory, as kingdoms that are too big to fail. Too big to fail. And yet they find themselves at this point, the end of the world as they know it. And I really only have one point this morning, one point with 36 subpoints, but no, just one point. When it feels like the end of the world as you know it, when it feels like the end of the world as you know it, rejoice and let it be an opportunity to hold fast to an everlasting God. When it feels like the end of the world as you know it, rejoice and hold fast to an everlasting God. Defeat, discouragement, Disappointment will often do one of two things. Either it will lead us to despair and retreat and to give up hope altogether, or it will lead us to let go of what it was that we were holding on to and grab onto something that is far more sure. When it feels like the end of the world, rejoice and hold on, hold fast to the everlasting God. I would say that in my time, my lifetime of, yes, just 38 years, I know it hasn't been a long life, but in my 38 years, I really feel like this is as unstable as I've ever felt our nation to be. I mean, I remember in second grade standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance and being such a proud American and and thinking like it could never get as great as America. In many ways, I still feel like that today. But if you think about the extreme polarity In our nation, if you think about the widespread distrust of our government, if you think about our own vulnerability right now to foreign powers, if you think about a pandemic that just won't seem to go away. On top of that, so much confusion around what we once assumed to be basic categories of identity, basic values, ethics, and morals that we all thought we kind of had some sense of agreement on. And I would throw on top of that such a lack of knowledge even in the church of the basic essential doctrines of God. I am not a doomsday type of person. I am not a prophecy chaser, but I want to say this. These are the times, times like these, that in the history of redemption, God has often used to awaken the souls of men and women often the wake-up calls for God's people to repent. And so this is an opportunity for all of us to, to be introspective this morning and to ask of God, what is it that you would have me repent of that is keeping me from holding fast to you? Now, I don't think we're quite yet desperate enough. I still see the church, and I don't, when I say the church, I mean the church at large, I still see the church, at least here in this nation, being as complacent as ever. I still see many within the church chasing after idols, many chasing after dust in the wind. I still see us holding on to our creature comforts and not wanting to let go. I still, still see many of us just amusing ourselves to death. I see many of us demanding our American rights. I see many of us more focused on masks and vaccines and pointing lots of fingers and casting blame than celebrating what binds us together and proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ to the hopeless. And I think we have been duped. I think the evil one is messing with us. Just consider all that Israel was caught up in in the hundred or so years following Solomon. If you can imagine this picture with me, here was that great temple to be dedicated to the Lord, the house of God. When they turned to it, they would remember that he is in charge and they would give him all their worship. And yet what had they allowed? They had allowed themselves to be completely encircled by foreign gods, the gods of the nations on all the high places. They had even brought foreign gods into the temple of God. The temple of God was filled with altars to foreign gods. On top of that, you had kings who were making child sacrifices in the spirit of the age. And if you don't think that that's happening today, that's a barbaric practice. There are many who are sacrificing their children for the spirit of the age, and we've given a really nice name to it it's called abortion but it's really all the same. Consulting of mediums, sorcery, witchcraft, making alliances with evil powers and hoping for worldly gain. And God would continue to be faithful to send prophet after prophet. God would continue to be faithful to even raise up three kings who would call for national repentance and national reform. Last week, we spoke of the lesson of the kings. What was the lesson of the kings? Essentially, watch out. Don't let the blessings that you are enjoying today because of God's faithfulness, don't let the blessings you enjoy today lead you to forsake the God who gave them to you. We talked about the lesson of the prophets. God's word is rarely popular. It's often costly, but it's always right. Friends, It is so much easier to just go with the flow. It is so much easier to just swim in the currents of this culture, in the currents of this world. It is really, really, really hard to follow God's word when it is being so opposed by the world around us. I pointed this out last week, but we have About 60 brothers and sisters who are sitting here today who essentially are confessing we believe the same things, we want to follow after Jesus, we want to follow his word. There are probably at least, I would imagine, 50,000 in the city of Omaha. Just imagine what it was like to just be in the less than 1%, the less than 1% who are remaining faithful Israel. I don't know, but this may be what's coming here. I've spent a few weeks in England. That's not a long time, but there are not a lot of believers there. And it used to be seen as the modern Jerusalem, the city of God back in the Victorian age. Very few believers there today. If this becomes the reality in America, where there are less than 1% who are faithfully following God's word. Which number are you going to be found among? The 1% or the 99? Who among you wants to be found among those who do not bow the knee to Baal? Bow the knee to this world. Coming back to the purpose of Israel, do you remember what God's purpose was for this nation all along? Was it not that they would be a set-apart nation distinct from all? All other nations, so that other nations would look to Israel and they would be drawn to the glory of God and see God as great and as good as He is. Remember with Solomon, Solomon builds the temple, he wholly dedicates it to the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. God makes him the wisest king to ever live, and the Queen of Sheba comes to visit and she says, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That was how it was intended to be. That was the purpose for Israel. It's the same purpose for God's chosen nation today, his church, his elect people of God, to Provoke praise for the one true God through distinct living and worship and blessing. Yet here was the ironic twist in this story. The nation that was supposed to be distinct from all other nations instead wanted to imitate everything that the nations around them were doing. So they began to worship the gods of the nations they began to adopt their same worship practices they began to embrace their sexual ethic they began to exalt kings they began to acquire large militaries and so on and so on and so on and when god pronounces his judgment in second kings chapter 17 it says that they sinned against god who brought them out of egypt he brought them away from the nations out of egypt They sinned against God, and they feared other gods. And it says, They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. They went after false idols, and they followed the nations. Now, think about this for a second. If you consider God's judgment upon Israel, as it's stated here in 2 Kings 17, and as later came at the end of 2 Kings with Judah... Israel being conquered by Assyria and displaced, Judah being conquered by Babylon and deported, wasn't it really just a matter of letting them get the full experience of what they were already seeking? You see, they wanted to be so much like other nations, so God let them become so much like other nations that they just got enfolded in. They lost their identity They forfeited everything they were supposed to be about, and they became subject to the edicts of other kings who cared nothing for the God of Israel. Do you realize, brother or sister, how conformed to the world you may be right now? Kind of like the famous frog in the boiling water, whether that experiment is true or not, The lesson is the same. Will you get out before you start boiling? Now, I do want to focus on one king in particular in the book of 2 Kings that I think gives us courageous inspiration and motivation to repent in the midst of times like these. One who highlights for us what is the catalyst for repentance and one who offers us a picture of what it looks like when we act on it and we repent. There are three kings in this book who are committed to really leading Israel back to the Lord, really leading a nation uh, in a national program of repentance. There was Joash, there was Hezekiah, and there was Josiah. And I want to talk about Josiah for just a little bit this morning. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter twenty-two, Second 2 Kings 22, In verse 11, just to kind of set the scene here, Josiah is following a very evil king, the king Manasseh. The temple is in complete disrepair. And Josiah says, We need to get this temple repaired. And so let's take all the offerings that have been given. And he he enlists a priest and a secretary. And he says, Just start rebuilding the temple. And what happens is as they begin to make repairs on the temple, someone finds the book of the law in the basement. And the way it's told, it's almost like they hadn't been reading this or they didn't know anything about it for hundreds of years. That's how bad things had gotten. Like, we found this book. We should read it and see what God says. Granted, this was the book that he said, never let it depart from your mouth. Never let it depart from your heart. Meditate on it day and night, and they're like, we found the book. And so they read it in the presence of King Josiah, and it says here in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He was so cut to the heart, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. In other words, I want to know exactly what it says and what it requires of us. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. To do not just here, but to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah is immediately cut to the heart and he says, we have to get back to obeying the word of God. And so what does he do? He goes on an idol removal campaign and just begins cleaning house all over the land, destroying these false altars that were built to foreign gods, removing them from the temple, restoring the purity of that place. Basically, a reversal of 500 years of apostasy and syncretism within Israel. All because they found the book of the law and decided to respond in obedience. You see, the word did all the work. The word did all the work. And I hope one theme that you have noticed again and again as we've been going through this series, whether it was with Joshua or with David or with Solomon at the very beginning whenever these great times of returning to the Lord and experiencing his blessing would come they always began every single time they always began with a renewed desire to take God at his word look at 2nd kings chapter 23 verse 24 Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses nor did any like him arise after him. Brothers and sisters, the safest place that you can ever be, when the world feels like it's falling apart all around you, the safest place that any of us can ever be, when the world is not falling apart all around us, the most secure we can ever be is when we are taking God at his word. That's the safest place you could possibly be in this world, whether things are going perfect for you or whether things are going horribly. The safest place you can be is taking God at his word. And even if the whole world should turn its back on God, your loved ones, your closest friends, people that you go to church with, it won't change a single thing about God's word. God's word will still endure forever. And if you love His word, it will be life for you. Now here's the thing: as much as as much of a high as Josiah's reign is in this story, what do you think happens next? If you've been following this story for the last few months, I think you know, you can probably predict what's about to happen next. In chapter 23 verse 31, it says, after Josiah dies his his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb and the people of the land took Jehoahaz the son of Josiah and anointed him and made him king in his father's place Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 3 months in Jerusalem 32 says and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. If you look in verse 36, a new king, Jehoiakim, was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 37, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Imagine those that lived through that time of Josiah and the national repentance of Israel and those who were found faithful and then Josiah dies. And maybe they're expecting the blessings of God to come because of that repentance and yet all they get is kings who turn their hearts from the Lord and more suffering, more suffering till at last they're carried away by a foreign nation. Friends, it may be that in our lifetime we experience a measure of suffering, It may be because of God's judgment for the sins of our fathers. It may be because of God's judgment for our own sins. It may come through persecution for being faithful to God. Remember, the scriptures tell us in Romans 8, we will be glorified with Christ provided that we suffer with him. There is no guarantee that our repentance will secure for us worldly peace and worldly comfort often it's quite the opposite remember there were 7000 only 7000 in israel during the reign of ahab there were hundreds of prophets who were killed because they stood faithful to god as i mentioned earlier this is happening right now to thousands of christians in afghanistan for a few few years at least there was some measure of freedom to be able to gather without the prospect of being murdered, but this past week, whatever little measure of freedom they did have, that all was taken away, and this morning, many of them gathered in secret, knowing full well this could be the last time that they would ever ever gather on this earth as God's people. But even that has to be OK for the Christian whose eyes are fixed on the eternal. I saw this Facebook post this week that read like this. It said, many Afghan Christians will die this week because they chose to worship. Many American Christians chose not to worship because something else was more important. Now, I don't know about you, I'm actually less moved by guilt and conviction that a post like this is meant to bring to me, maybe personally, obviously, I'm here every Sunday. (laughs) I kind of have to be. But what is far more moving and far more convicting for me as a pastor is knowing that Afghan Christians will gather today because they feel as though they can do nothing else. Because worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the essential balm for their tired, fearful, and uncertain souls. And we trample on it. We trample all over those Afghan Christians by saying, we don't care. And that breaks my heart. They gather because when death is so imminent, it becomes clear that gathering with brothers and sisters before the throne of Jesus Christ, which is our eternal, joyful privilege too, is both a necessity for them, and a pleasure superior to any other that this world could possibly give. If you need a diagnostic for whether it's time to repent this morning, and, and when I say repent, I mean it in, in a couple ways. One, if you have not given your life to Christ ever before, it's the opportunity to do that. But two, the Christian life will be marked by repentance. And so, if you're happy walking away from God because of something you did 20 years ago that means you got a ticket into heaven, you may not be a Christian. The Christian life is marked by a continual heart of repentance. So, let me give you a diagnostic. And I applied this to myself in preaching this week, and there was a lot that I needed to repent of. One, is the word of God essential in your life? And when I say essential, meaning as badly as you feel like you need that next meal or that breath of air, you feel like you can't go a day without the word of God. Is the word of God essential to your life? Number two, is gathering with God's people essential? Like I said, Afghan Christians are gathering today because it's the only thing to do. Is gathering with God's people essential or are you okay just with being absent from the body? And number three, and there's only th- I'm only giving three, there's, I'm sure there's plenty more, but is obedience to God's word, doing God's word, looking at what it says and saying, am I doing that? Is obedience to God's word essential? Is it a necessity for you? Remember at the end of Second Kings. We read it at the beginning here, chapter 25. They were carried off by a foreign nation that they wanted to be just like. They were so in love with the nations around them, they had so abandoned the God that was supposed to be over them that eventually they had nothing left. They had no city, they had no temple, and they were subjects to other kings while this would be the end of the world as Judah and Israel had known it, know also that it was far, far from the end of the story. God would preserve there a faithful remnant. A faithful remnant who would spend their time in exile, in captivity, suffering for the sins of the people. During that time, you would have guys like Daniel and Ezekiel who would prophesy there. You would have Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai who would eventually return and lead a rebuilding of the city and a turning back to the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. And that faintly burning wick of the royal line of God would still be preserved for another 580 years until at last there was a new king born in a manger in Bethlehem in Judea. And this king came to this earth not seeking worldly wealth and comfort, but he came to suffer and to be crushed for our iniquities. The sins that we committed yesterday, that we will commit today and tomorrow. If you remember, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus refused because he had some other plan that was far bigger and far better, far more glory in store for us. In store for all of us. This is the king who by his wounds on the cross would bring everlasting healing and everlasting peace to anyone who would believe in him. Anyone who would turn from following the world and come to follow Christ the one who brought peace and reconciliation with God that can still be known today and he said my kingdom is not of this world you can't serve this world and still serve me it's a clean break are you with me or are you with the world and brothers and sisters we we have no control over the maneuvering of political powers in this world we don't know what's going to happen to America. We can, we can work for change, and we should. We can work for reform, and we can live as salty and lit Christians in the midst of a dark world. But know that it is God alone who holds kings and kingdoms in his hands, and he turns them wherever he wishes, according to his good purposes. And one day, all kingdoms and all societies are going to come to an end, the end of the world as we know it. And what is of utmost importance is not whether this earthly kingdom or that earthly kingdom rises or falls. What is most important is that we are found as faithful citizens of the heavenly kingdom. That we are bound in our obedience and worship to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Would you say that that is true of you today? When it feels like the world as you know it has ended, may it only be another reminder that this world is not your home. May it be a wake-up call for you to clear away all the junk, all the clutter that keeps you from seeing Christ Jesus as he truly is. May it be another gracious opportunity for us to cleanse this temple and for this temple to be restored as his rightly home, as his rightful home. Jesus says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. "'If anyone loves the world, "'the love of the Father is not in him. "'For all that is in the world, "'the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes "'and the pride of life is not from the Father, "'but is from the world. "'And the world is passing away along with its desires. "'But whoever does the will of God abides forever.'" So I'm going to pray, as I always do, at the end of the sermon. But before I go to the Lord in prayer, I want us to just sit here for a little bit. Sit alone with God and ask him, Lord, show me those worthless things that I have put in my life that are keeping me from you. What is it that you are calling me to repent of? this morning. And like I said, I know I have some things that he has revealed to me throughout this week, and I pray that he would take whatever those worthless vain things that you are chasing after, that he would remove them far from your life so that you could see him clearly and enjoy the blessings he has for you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.